0: John chapter 4, 27 to 38. What is your food? And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? or Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this word of Christ. And we pray that you will teach us from this word of Christ what it means to follow Christ, to do the will of the Father. Just as Jesus desired nothing else in life but to do your will, we pray that we will do the same. Most importantly, preaching and living this gospel. Grant that to us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've now come to the end of the conversation. We came to the end of the conversation in the previous message in verse 26. But upon the end of the conversation, now we have a springboard to another incident or another issue that arises. And that is the woman of Samaria leaves and she goes and tells others. And then meantime, Jesus has a conversation. He has a lesson to teach his own disciples. We will see here what it is that she does and what it is that Christ does with his own disciples when she's not there. Those are the two main incidents that occur. The first lesson we'll see from verse 27. It says, and at this point, his disciples came. At the point of the conversation, when Jesus had identified his own identity to her, that he was the Christ, the one speaking to the woman of Samaria, that he indeed was the Christ, it convinced her enough that conversation she had, even though Jesus exposed her sin, it convinced her enough because of the things Jesus taught her, taught her about her own life, taught her about God, taught her about true worship, and even taught her about the true prophet, the Christ himself, the Christ of God. It all convinced her to a point that when the disciples came, she knew that that was an ample or proper opportunity for her to to depart and go and tell others. Well, right here at this point, the disciples come to the end of this and they see that she departs. Now, it says in 27, they marveled. They were amazed. They were astonished that Jesus would do this. They were astonished that Jesus would do what? Speak with a woman. Because some of their rabbis said that it was dishonorable, it was dishonorable to speak with a woman for too long or even with a woman at all in certain circumstances. They had a a doctrine, some of the rabbis did, not all of them, but some of them had a, a doctrine that went too far in dealings with women. So they were presumably aware of this and some of them probably imbibed some of that teaching. And so that's why, they are amazed or they are marveling that he's speaking with a woman and it would have been for a long time. It would not have been for a short time because they had gone into the city to buy food and then come back and that would have taken some time and it was clear that they were conversing there at the well for a while. So they are amazed and in their mind, this is happening in their mind, right? Because it says, yet no one said what do you seek or why do you speak with her? In their mind, they have some dissonance. They have some confusion. Why is Jesus doing this? But notice, they don't actually articulate it. They don't actually say the words. They don't actually speak up and accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. Because up to this point, they have had enough interaction with Christ They do believe that Christ is sinless and perfect. They do understand his integrity. They do understand his deity. They understand who he is. So even though from the flesh, their first reaction was to be amazed and to doubt him, they didn't let it come out of their mouth. They did not let it come out of their mouth. Even if we say that their amazement wasn't sinful amazement, Still, they did not let anything come out of their mouth to challenge Christ because they knew whatever Jesus Christ does is right and true. Whatever he says is right and true and they could not at any point presume to doubt him. We should not doubt Christ. If Jesus teaches us to follow him, to do his commandments, And to teach others to do His commandments, as He does in the Great Commission. If He is the model for perfection, for ethical, moral perfection, if He is the perfect model, then we should behave like Him. And therefore, not ever presume to contradict Him. The flesh does that many, many times. It does it many times. The flesh Whenever it hears the word of God, the flesh says, no, I don't want to do it. When the flesh hears what God says in Christ, we think maybe there's something wrong with God. Maybe there's something wrong with Christ. Christ did it that way, but I'm never going to do that. Christ says this, but I'm never going to say that. Christ exposed people's sins, but I'm never going to do that. That's what the flesh says. But the disciples did not presume to contradict Christ, at least not at this moment. In this incident, they did not presume to do that and neither should we. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans three, verse four. God is true and right in everything he does. Now, what is the doctrine that would be in jeopardy if they are thinking sinfully of Christ, that Christ did something wrong, And then if they asserted that, if they actually vocalized that thought, Christ, you're doing something wrong. You're sinning. What would the doctrine be that they jeopardize? It would be the sinlessness or the impeccability of Christ, right? But he cannot be a savior with one sin. Not not even one sin. He cannot be. He has to be a perfect savior. So he had perfect active obedience. Everything he thought, everything he said and did was perfect and right. So we cannot ever presume to contradict that. He is true and not us. And thankfully, the disciples did not speak up. Verse 28, the woman, verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Notice here that she leaves her water pot. She came for water, and it's in the heat of the day. It's about noon. It's in the heat of the day. It's lunchtime. It's the time when she needed water, and those back home in the town, they needed water, and even Jesus needed water, but we don't read of any of them partaking of the water. What happens here to her? In her enthusiasm, which I don't think is rash enthusiasm, But this is the nature of what it is. That when we are thinking about physical things and even food and drink, physical food and drink, whenever a spiritual issue, a spiritual matter comes up, what is it that overtakes the need for physical food? The spiritual conversation, the spiritual issue of the day. So that if it is lunchtime and you encounter somebody and you begin talking to him about the things of God, the gospel, then your mind's not going to be on food. And his mind, if he is engaged with you, his mind's not going to be on food. And that's likewise what happened to her. She was fully focused on the spiritual matter. That's why she left the water pot there. Perhaps also she's going to come back when she brings other men from the city. If Jesus stays there by the well, then others from the the city or the town will come and join her and see Christ. Whatever the reason, we do know here that her mind is on the spiritual and not the physical. Is that not what Jesus was trying to do all along in this chapter? Her mind was thinking about physical things, water, water, water. I don't want to come all the way to this well and draw from this well all the time if you've got water that will spring up in, into me so that I won't thirst again. I want that. She was thinking physically. Now she understands she knows Jesus has been talking about spiritual matters. Now, she has begun, begun to understand it in the previous paragraph, but here she is displaying it by her actions that Jesus is about spiritual things. So, verse 29, what does she say to the men? Now, when it says the men, it's, it's not the word the men that is exclusively the males in the city. Although many interpreters take it that way, it's not the Greek word in the original language that it's only to the males, the adult males in the city. It could be just people generally who she has in mind that she went to approach. That's important to note. Verse 29, what does she say? Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? She invites the others to come and see, which may be that she's wanting to bring them back to the well so that they can meet Christ there. She says, come and see. Come and see. This is the way of the invitation when we are explaining the gospel to people. Listen, I'm telling you these truths, friend, but why don't you come over here and see? Why don't you come over here where these other believers are, where you can learn more about the truth of the gospel? You want to be confirmed in what I'm telling you? Yes, I might be a stranger to you, but come over here and these other people that you might know. You may have seen that church building over there. You know it, everybody in the town, they know it's there, but you've never gone in there. So it's a familiar place, but now come and see what takes place in there. So come and see, that's the approach. And her approach is not a unique approach. This is the approach of what happened earlier in chapter one. In chapter one, it says in chapter one, verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus, so forth, right? Andrew, the brother Peter, first met Christ and then he went to Peter and brought Peter to Christ. it was another come and see a moment. and that's the nature of what it is. If you are a believer, you will go and you'll bring others to the rest of the believers. You'll also speak up. What is she doing when she says, "Come and see?" Remember second Corinthians 4:13, just as it is written, "I believe, therefore I spoke. Therefore we believe, therefore we speak. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 4.13, we believe, therefore we speak. If we truly believe it, it should be a burden on our heart to explain it to others so that they might also come and see. Now, in verse 29, she introduces the miraculous. Remember, she never told Christ She never told Christ that she was married to five husbands and the man that she now had was not her husband. Jesus revealed that to her and that's what she's referencing when she says, who told me all the things that I have done. She's not exaggerating. She's not telling a lie. She's using a form of expression to say, he told me a lot about my past that I never revealed to him. Who is this man? Who is this one? Um, And also in verse 39, verse 39, she repeats the same. He told me all the things that I have done. So she introduces this unique aspect of Christ to the people so that the people give her some credibility. Because if she was a woman of ill repute, if she was a woman that wasn't respected by the people, she wants to say, not only come and see, but listen, this is what I'm telling you, this is what happened. This is what happened to me. He told me about my past, which the other people, the townsmen, they all would have known about, right? They would have known, at least many of them would have known, something, some things about her past. And she's saying, I would never have divulged this information, right? You all witnessed it, but I would never willingly divulge my wicked past. But he knew about it. So come and see, and why would I have a reason to lie to you that he told me about my past? Because I don't want to tell anybody, but he already knew. So come and see. Come and see in that sense. Further, in verse 29, this is not the Christ, is it? I think that this could be better rendered slightly differently, because the way it reads, it reads like she doesn't believe. It reads as though she doesn't believe. This is not the Christ, is it? In English, that's the way of expressing disbelief. If she wanted to express belief more clearly, it would have been this is the Christ, is it not? This is the Christ, is it not? In English, technically speaking, and I know today many of us are not grammarians, but technically speaking in English, she would have said if she really wanted to say with full force, this is the Christ. She would have said, this is the Christ, is it not? Okay, but the way it is in the original language, it's more of a midpoint statement or midpoint question trying to arouse the curiosity of the hearers. And the way I think it would be better rendered is, can this be the Christ? So she's not necessarily doubting it, And she's arousing their curiosity to come and see. Come check it out. Can this be the Christ? I think that would be a good way because I don't think she's in unbelief at this point. I don't think she's in unbelief. But what does she do? She arouses their curiosity. Can we not do the same? Can we not do the same? When we explain the gospel, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Why are you here? What, what, is it? what is it that God has ordained in this world for all of us? What are you going to do about your sins? What's going to happen to you when you die? Did you know that there's going to be a day of judgment? Did you know that either we're going to heaven or to eternal hell, eternal punishment? When we ask questions like that to people, we arouse their curiosity. We make them interested. Hopefully so. Some people are so immune to those things, it doesn't faze them. But in other cases, if God's going to work on their heart, he uses those kinds of questions to prod their thinking, to arouse their curiosity, to want to understand and know more. So that's what she does. We should do the same. Okay, then verse 30. They went out of the city and were coming to him. So there we have it. She did successfully make them curious about the things that she just experienced by her words. Now, verse 30 picks up at verses 39 to 42. Next time we will come to that and see what they say after they encounter Christ. But at least in verse 30, we have a confirmation that she was indeed successful in making them curious to want to come to Christ. To at least hear him out personally. 31. In 31 to 38, now we have the second part, the second incident that occurs. The disciples have now come. The disciples have now come, and they are alone with Christ. So it is the 12 with Christ, most likely. At least them, if not others. It's at least the 12 with Christ. So, verse 31. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. That's the reason they went into the city to buy food. They came back. It's lunchtime. And they have the food there. It's ready. So it's time to eat. They offer him what is necessary. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to bridge the gap between the physical and the spiritual. 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I have food to eat that you do not know about. What did he mean? Verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In 32, when he first asserts it, when he first asserts it, he's talking about something that is spiritual. Now, when he says they do not know about it, I don't think he meant they don't know about it whatsoever. I, don't, I think what he meant was they don't have the full sense of it as he has. They don't have the full knowledge of it as he has, but he wants them to have it because that's what he's teaching them in the subsequent verses. I want you to be like this, right? I want you to be just like I am. It's the full sense of it, the comprehensive understanding of it, the comprehensive desire for it. That's what they don't know about. They know about it some, but they need to understand and want it and know it more. Okay? That's what he means. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Did they understand? Did they understand verse 33? The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And that is meant to be in the negative. There we have it again. According to English, we would say, no one brought him anything to eat, means no one did, did he? So we are asserting the negative in that way. They are asserting the negative. What's their problem? They're thinking about the material food. Their problem is just like the woman of Samaria's problem was initially. She was thinking about physical water, even when Jesus was talking about spiritual water. And their problem was just like Nicodemus. When Jesus taught Nicodemus rebirth, Nicodemus was thinking of physical rebirth. I can't go a second time into my mother's womb and be born, right? That's what he's thinking, which is a common problem. When we're trying to talk about spiritual things, people don't get it initially. And in this case, we're talking about the disciples of Christ. Even the disciples of Christ, and this is not the only occasion, Jesus would say something to them, but their immediate reaction would be to think about the visible world, the world that they can touch, the world that they can feel, the world that they can hear and smell. They would be thinking about those things and not the spiritual meaning of the words. That's a common problem. And why would it also be a problem with the disciples? Because they still have the flesh. They still have the old nature in them, which is akin to what we have. We too, often, we will hear something spiritually from the Bible, but we won't think about the spiritual thing. We're going to think about the physical. Whenever we encounter somebody... The first thing on our mind is going to be the physical, not the spiritual. When I need to go somewhere, I'm thinking about the physical task I have at hand. I need to buy this and that. Or I need to go speak to so-and-so about something that's material, physical, temporary. I need to pay so-and-so. I need to do something. That's what we're thinking, right? But what about the spiritual part? They weren't thinking that way. So Jesus explains further, verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 4, 34. This is one verse we should all memorize. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That concisely tells us what should be on our mind Day by day, moment by moment, all the time. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Yes, Christ is speaking of Himself, but it also applies to us. First, let's see what He means when He's speaking of Himself. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Well, the will of Him who sent me, who is the one who sent Him? God the Father. Many times in the book of John, as many as 40 times in the book of John, Jesus says, He sent me, the Father sent me, God sent me. Or even John will say, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These kinds of expressions are here in this book of John numerous times. So there is no doubt he's talking about the Father. The Father sent the Son to do what? To do the will of the Father. Remember, Jesus said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was always about doing the Father's will. Remember, he said, your will be done. He wanted to do God's will. Now, in doing God's will and accomplishing his work, what do we mean? What, do we, what did Jesus mean about what he needed to do? Well, doing the will of the Father meant fully obeying the Father throughout his whole life. This is called Christ's or Jesus' active obedience. His active obedience, his work was to fully, in every way, obey the law of Moses, to obey the will of the Father. He was supposed to do it in every aspect, in every detail, do the will of the Father. Right? If he did not do the will of the Father at any point, then he would have sinned. So that was his first duty to do that. He says in John chapter eight, John chapter eight and verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus was self-aware of the fact that he was always obeying the Father. John eight twenty nine, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John chapter eight, verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin if i speak truth why do you not believe me he tells his critics which one of you convicts me of sin prove it if i have sinned but i have not is the point he committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth 1 peter 2:21-22 he was tempted in all points just as we are yet without sin hebrews 4:15 Correct? So this is our Lord Jesus Christ. He desired to obey the will of the Father in every regard and to accomplish his work. Then, in terms of fully accomplishing his work and fully doing his will, ultimately it culminated in what? The cross. The cross. The cross of Christ. He had to also die on the cross which is known as his passive obedience. Not that he was passively in every sense going to the cross because he willingly did that. But in terms of what happened against him or to him, in that sense, he, he had to obey the Father. He obeyed the Father in that sense. So his death on the cross had to happen for us. He had to accomplish the will of the Father for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when he died on the cross, he died as our substitute. He died in our place. He died as receiving our punishment so that we not spend eternity in the lake of fire. He received punishment so that we not receive punishment. So he was in our, it says, the theologians say, In our room and in our stead, He conquered it for us, or He experienced it for us. That was what He accomplished. That's why it says in John 1930, when he was about to die, he says, It is finished. It is finished. And also in John chapter seventeen, he says, in his prayer, that he has accomplished the work which you gave me to do. John chapter 17, verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus did so. Now, we have to ask, what about us? Are we supposed to be the same? Is, is this not what Jesus was teaching his disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then in 35 to 38, he gives them an example of doing that work, right? right. He's laboring, he wants them to labor in the same. So we're also supposed to do this. We're also su- supposed to do the will of the Father. Let's take a, a journey through a few scriptures in the New Testament to establish the fact that we also are supposed to do the will of the Father, the will of the Father. What does it say in the Lord's Prayer? Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Matthew 6, 10. Our prayer to the Father is, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Well, who's left on the earth? If Jesus has ascended into heaven, who's on the earth and who is it that God expects to do his will? You and me, right? He expects us to do that. He expects his people on the earth to do his will. John chapter 14, John chapter 14, John chapter 14 and verse 15, 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter fifteen, John chapter fifteen and verse ten. Fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Right? 15 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. If we do the will of Christ, if we love Christ, obey his commandments, we keep the Father's commandments just as Jesus kept the Father's commandments. This is how our love for Christ is manifested or perfected. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. The will of God. How are we going to prove it? We're going to prove it, manifest it, display it when we give up our whole bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Just as Christ offered his body as a sacrifice, now it is our duty to deliver our bodies up as a sacrifice to God. And our mind, renew our mind and give it over to God. Be transformed by the will of God of God further first John first John first John chapter 2 first John chapter 2 two first John 2 15 do not love the world nor the things in the world for If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The will of God does not include the will of the world, the love of the world, the lusts or evil desires of the world. Those kinds of things are not included in the will of God. All of that is contrary to the will of God. We must live in accordance with what the word says, not the way the world seeks to impose its will on us, not according to the way the world seeks to entice us with their values and their will. No, not like that. The will of God, if we do the will of God, we remain, we abide, we last forever. Now, someone might say, I really don't like thinking about God. I don't like thinking about the word of God. I don't want to obey God. Obeying God is a burden to me obeying God, doing His will, it's just really distasteful to me. It's really like that. But in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not Burdensome. When someone has been truly converted, when someone truly has a new heart, is a new creature in Christ Jesus, all old things passed away, behold, all things have become new. When that transformation of mind and heart has occurred in the soul of man, then when he hears about the commandments of God, he does not consider them a burden. He says his commandments are not burdensome they are not burdensome Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 11 Matthew chapter 11 28 e- Matthew 11:28 Jesus said the same Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls For my yoke is easy And my load is light. My yoke is easy. My load is light. If we are weary and heavy laden, from what? From the burden of sin. From the burden of sin, Christ will give us rest from the burden of sin. He will release us so that we're not slaves of sin anymore. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And when we are free, we have an easy and light load. We have an easy and light load. That's the transformed heart that does not look at the commandments of God as burdensome. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and now Jesus illustrates, he illustrates how he's going to accomplish this will and he wants his disciples to do so in the same way. John 4:35. John 4:35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. He uses a couple of proverbs of the day, certain axioms, certain common sayings of the day in 35, there, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? That's one. And in 37, one sows and another reaps. These are common axioms, common adages uh, that are said everywhere. People all around the world, they say something like this, something like this or another, right? That this is the way of life. This is the way things happen in the real world or in the physical world. So if that's the way it happens in the physical world, that there is going to be a time for harvest and that there are some who are going to sow or scatter the seed and that others who are hired are going to harvest the crop in a few months, if we know that that is the pattern of the world, well, that's the same in the spiritual world. He says the spiritual field of harvest is just like it is in the physical One sows, another reaps. There's going to be a time to harvest. So in the same way, spiritually, this happens. Verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. It happens this way in the spiritual world too. He bridges the gap, makes it very clear he's talking about spiritual things because he says life eternal or eternal life. That's the way it works. He who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So when the reaping actually occurs, they rejoice together, they receive wages together, they receive a reward together, and we help each other. We help each other because he says in 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored. That means those who scattered, those who planted or sowed the seeds, they were the ones who labored first. You have entered into their labor. Now, in the immediate context, what does he mean? The disciples are going to encounter people who have already heard of John the Baptist and the prophets, all who preceded John the Baptist, right? Either in the written word or in the spoken word, They've already heard them preach. So John, he scattered or he planted seeds, he sowed seeds into the minds of the people. Some of them have yet to convert. Some of them have yet to be built up and discipled in the faith. So he's saying to them, now you are going to receive, you're going to be the ones experiencing. You did not sow the seed, others did before you but now you are going to harvest it. That is, when I send you out to preach and teach, such as with the Samaritans who are about to come and meet us here at the well, when the Samaritans come, we're going to be able to talk to them. We're going to be able to spread the word with them. We're going to preach the gospel to them and they're going to harvest it or you're going to harvest them. I sowed the seed with the Samaritan woman and even harvested that, but now you're going to harvest the things that your predecessors sowed. And it all goes together. It all works together. So what does he mean in this way about the sowing, the harvesting, the eternal life, the wages or the reward, working together, being of one mind in working together? What does he mean by all this? Let's turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. At the end of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, verse 36, Jesus is ministering from place to place and he sees the multitudes, the crowds of people. 9.36, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep Without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He's teaching his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There are few people going to have to reap this huge harvest. Few. So we need more workers. So pray for more workers. Ask the Lord, the Lord of the harvest, to send out more workers, which includes us, correct? If we're gonna pray for that to happen, it has to happen first with us. We have to first obey and then encourage others to obey in the same manner. Another example is 1 Corinthians chapter three. 1 Corinthians chapter three. At this point, the Corinthian church—they had been experiencing divisions, some conflicts, because there were there's a party mentality, divisive mentality. I follow this one, no, but I follow this other, and Paul did not like that because he knew that that was contrary to the gospel. So, in contrast to that, he's going to teach them that we're supposed to be working together for this, and it's all not for our sake but for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Okay, chapter three, 1 Corinthians 3, verse one. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. Babes or infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted... Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. In the first part of this chapter, he confronts their division. He confronts their divisiveness. He confronts their jealousy and strife. He confronts it. And it's manifested in verse four one says, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. It says it's as though Paul is against Apollos. Apollos is against Paul. When that's not the case. Both of them are pointing the people to the Word of God. So it's the Word of God that they should give their attention to. They should be confronted with the truths of the word of God, not with their party mentality, I'm of Paul's party, and the other one says, I'm of Apollos' party. No, not like that, but God. Then, he puts Paul and Apollos in their rightful place. The apostle does, just as we should. What are we? Verse 5, servants through whom you believe. Servants through through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. God gave Paul the opportunity to plant. He gave Apollos the opportunity to water. But who ultimately causes the growth in the human heart? Just like even in the field, who ultimately causes the growth of the crop? It's God, right? It can't be the farmer and it can't, cannot be the harvester who ultimately causes it. They plant and they water, they harvest, but it's God who does it. So we're nothing, God's everything, He he's say, saying in verse 7. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. However, we are one. We need to be considered one and work together in order to Bring about the harvest. Now, he's been using this illustration of the field and the harvest, and then he transitions to a building, the imagery of a building, which what he takes up in 10 to 15. This imagery of a building, the foundation of all truth is the gospel. That's what we need to preach, Jesus Christ. But then when we preach Jesus Christ, the things we build, we're going to be held accountable to that. We're going to be held accountable for everything we do. And there's either going to be gold, silver, precious stones in our deeds, or there's going to be wood, hay, and straw. Now, if you take a fire and light it to the wood, hay, and straw, what's going to happen? It's going to burn up, which he says on the day of judgment, every evil thing we've done will be burned up. But all the things we've done in Christ that are value, valuable like wood, hay, and precious, I'm sorry, gold, silver, and precious stones, those things will endure the heat of the fire and will be saved. So our wage, our reward, ultimately is Jesus Christ and the things we have done in Christ for the sake of the gospel. So that's where our need is. That's where our focus is ought to be the gospel of Christ. Living it, knowing it, preaching it, teaching it, explaining it to whoever will listen to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.